This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, welcome back, everybody out there in listener land. This is episode 57 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're past Christmas, we're past New Year's, and we're on the heels of Snowpocalypse 2017. So we're back for our first episode of this year. Steve-O, welcome back to the virtual studio. Thanks, Tucker. It's great to be back after, gosh, it's been about a week of this. I know by the time this airs here in a few days, because it does take us a couple days to get these out, but probably, hopefully the snow is all gone and it's in our rear view mirror. But man, here now it's still on the ground and it's been such for about a week now. I'm so over it. I'm ready for 80 degree weather. It can't come soon enough for me. How about you, Tucker? Well, I'm going to make a prediction that when this comes out, people are going to be wishing that it was still snowing because we're going to have flooding problems. <laughs> so Yeah, we'll, that's what we'll they're saying. That, that's what they're we'll saying. See how that goes. And I got to think, as much as this Royals our business and my business, and, and it does, make no mistake, I mean, it's hard to list homes. We had a listing up on Skyline we were trying to take live last week. We're still not live, and we're probably going to go live maybe Thursday, Friday. And you're not able to show buyers' homes, or you're very much handicapped in that regards. I think we're all feeling it. I mean, I saw a news clip recently from a local restaurant that was talking about how much it's impacted their bottom line and their business. And Make no mistake, in real estate, we very much are affected by it and feel it. Now, the good news for us, unlike a restaurant, I would say is that while it affects this month's paycheck and next month's paycheck, I think we will pull out of it by having bigger months afterwards because I think the consumer is still going to do what they need to do. That person that decided two weeks ago they want to sell is still going to sell or that wants to buy is still going to buy. So we'll have bigger months, but there'll be much more business in those months and you know they'll be sparse in these months. So that's the positive. Whereas I don't know if people who are going to restaurants, if they didn't go to a restaurant in the last week and a half or two weeks, I don't know if they're going to go three, four times you know, once we pull out of this to make up for it. So anyways, enough about that. I want to introduce a very special guest that we have here on our show. He's actually in my office just down the hall here. It is Jeff Wyron. He is the managing principal broker for PPG. So He's actually the head broker that all other reviewing brokers report to. He's just been such a tremendous asset to our company. I appreciate his knowledge base and insight onto so many different topics that we have to discuss. He's got quite a resume as it pertains to his involvement in various committees. He was the chairman of the OREF Forms Committee, which is one of the main reasons we have him on this is because we're going to go over some forms changes today pretty significant ones, actually. He's also, and Jeff can correct me on this, but I think he's got some affiliations with RMLS and some of their committees for this year, actually, 2017. When he gets to speak here in a second, I'll let him clarify all of this and how I butchered it up. But he's done several presentations. Hundreds and hundreds of our agents and agents from other companies have listened to him in the previous couple weeks. There's some major changes to the OREF forms for the year 2017. I sat through one of those presentations. First of all, it occurred to me quickly that these are big changes and people need to know about them and they need to understand not just what they are, but the whys behind them. Nobody is better at explaining these. Nobody has had more involvement in why these are coming to fruition. So 
Without further ado, Jeff, welcome to the show, and we're excited to pick your brain and have you educate us and our listeners on all these changes. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, and it's been a pleasure serving on the Forms Committee. I am going to be the incoming chair for RMLS in 2017, and I also, a lot of people don't know that RMLS has a Forms Committee as well, and I serve on that too. So just a quick plug, I would say, you know, about getting involved, if you're a realtor out there that, you know, is interested in helping to be a part of the decisions that impact, you know, everybody's lives and how we do business, you won't do wrong to get involved. Just reach out to PMR, to OAR, to RMLS, or to the Forms Committee. They could use good people that are very you know, interested and, and invested in making sure that what we do is good. So just a quick plug for that. But thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And I will say, I know a lot of our listeners are unable to have this form in front of them while they listen. They're probably driving. But if at all possible, it sure would help if you could have the 2017 contract in front of you. So as we zip through some of these changes, you might be able to follow along. You know what we can do is we can actually attach to the show notes page the kind of summary page that we're going to talk about, which might be a real help to a lot of the agents that are listening. And just Yeah, no, that's great. And maybe even the red line version of the changes as well. So let's get right into it, Jeff, so we can keep moving along. Tell us the first change in the order that, and we're following, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, we're basically starting at the first page, the first paragraph, and then all changes are in consecutive order as you would see them there. Correct, Jeff? Yeah, I'm going to be referring to the 2017 quick change summary that I prepared. The red line version is great, but for the purpose of expediency, I've kind of boiled that down to salt on the quick change summary. So we're going to talk about that. Perfect. Go for it. Give us the first change for the year. Okay, so the first thing is that we had a lot of subscriber feedback about agent identification. And back in the days long before exclusive buyer agency and exclusive seller agency, Everybody was essentially a sub-agent of the seller. So you either had a listing licensee or the selling licensee. Just because you were the selling licensee didn't mean you were a buyer's agent necessarily. So for years, the sale agreement and all the addendum have referred to us as agents as either listing licensees or selling licensees. When the agency disclosure pamphlet itself referred to us as either a buyer's agent or a seller's agent. So the document that we were giving our consumers to define the relationship we would have with them was not matching the language in the sale agreement or the addendum. So we've changed that. So you're going to see moving forward in 2017 that everywhere that used to say selling licensee now says buyer's agent. Everywhere that used to say listing licensee now says seller's agent. And we think that that'll be less confusing for the consumer and hopefully for our realtors as well. So that's the first big change throughout the form. That's a great change, by the way, because it always confused me to the point where you've literally <laughs> flip-flopped the names. It was that confusing. Yeah. Before, the selling licensee was the buyer's agent. Now the seller's agent is the listing agent. So I'm glad that there's uniformity there. I second that. Yeah. So the next big change is in regard to the cash sale. And we added some language. Essentially, the way that the cash sale provision used to read, we added language a few years ago that said, hey, listen, if you're going to make a cash offer, that's great. But the buyer has the right to verify that you actually have the cash because you get a lot of offers that say, hey, it's a cash offer when really, you know, what they mean is cash at closing and they're actually getting a mortgage or they're getting a hard money loan, which isn't the same as liquid funds in the bank. So we added several years ago a provision for the seller to have a right to review the verification of funds. And it was pretty heavily weighted that the seller had an unconditional right to disapprove of that verification of funds within a certain time period. So in conversation with Phil Quarren on the committee, the committee decided, look, we need to add some language in there, making it clear to a seller that though they can disapprove of it, they can't withhold that, you know, it can't be objectively unreasonable. 
So what that means is, you know, you make a $300,000 cash offer, you can prove to a seller you got $500,000 of liquid cash and a checking account ready to go. Is it objectively reasonable that a seller would say, well, I don't approve that? No, it's not. So now it says that the proof of funds, the seller can't withhold that. They have to be objectively reasonable if they're going to disapprove of the verification of funds. It's an interesting one, Steve, because I don't know that, you know, I guess if somebody if it was a $300,000 home, they showed you a statement for 250000 in cash, that might be something to object to. But if it was 500000 can't imagine anybody in their right mind would have any objective, you know, reasonably objective to whatever, you know, in that case. I think what, I think what it's addressing here, Tucker, I think it's a good change. I think in the past, what could happen, and, and Jeff can confirm, if a seller puts a house on the market, they get a $300,000 offer, cash, and they accept it. And then all of a sudden, another offer comes in that's three fifty, dollars say, and then the, the proof of funds come over and they could nitpick it and go, oh, well, we don't like this or we don't like this entity or this banking institution. There really wasn't clear guidelines on what was okay and not okay as far as accepting those that proof. Is that correct, Jeff? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why we added that language. So, I mean, the case in point is, could a seller really have objected to a true cash buyer that could prove it? You know, that's a legal question and that's a tough answer. But we wanted to make the language in the agreement very clear that if you're going to object to a verification of funds, it has to be objectively reasonable. It has to be a reason why you did. All right. So the next major change, and probably I think one of the biggest ones for this year, is in the financing contingency. And there's a lot of language that goes along to this change, but I just want to cover the top line of it, which is that if a buyer submits a pre-approval letter with their offer, if they're getting a mortgage, the language essentially now words that that is a contract item. So whereas in the past, the buyer couldn't change their loan program without the seller's permission. They couldn't make an offer saying, hey, I'm getting a conventional loan. And then, you know, halfway into the process, change it to an FHA loan without the seller approving that. Nor could they change the amount of their down payment with this, without the seller's approval. But they could submit a pre-approval letter saying, I'm pre-approved with, you know, Director's Mortgage, a great local bank that has, you know, an earnest money guarantee and all this nine yards. The seller accepts the offer. And then after the offer is accepted, the buyer says, oh, well, that's great. Thank you. But we're going to change now to XYZ, you know, internet lending company where their closing rate's not nearly as good. And there was really nothing the seller could do about that, even though that may have been the primary item that compelled the seller to take that offer over any other was the security of the lender. In addition, we had scenarios and subscriber feedback where, you know, a buyer makes an offer. They want to change the loan program far enough into the timeline of the closing. They got a mortgage broker from whatever mortgage company saying, oh, yeah, we can still get it done. I know it's tight, but we can make it happen. You as a listing agent and the seller are looking at it going with TRID guidelines. There's no way you're going to close on time and we don't want to extend. We have a backup offer. But at that point, really, the seller was kind of held hostage. They couldn't seek a termination just because the buyer had indicated they wanted to change lender at that point. All they could do was wait for the transaction not to close on the closing date and then seek termination at that point. So those were the two primary reasons for this change was to say, look, if you're a buyer, absolutely, you want to shop for a mortgage, go for it. But you need to do that before you write an offer. Because once you submit a pre-approval letter with your offer and the seller accepts it, that's the lender you're working with. And if you want to change that lender, the seller has a right to approve that change and they don't have to if they don't want to. That's a major change. Of all the changes, it's probably one of the biggest this year. I see lots of good that will come from this. I think there's going to be some unknowns. It will be interesting to watch. I don't even know that we'll be able to speculate them. You know, some of the things that come to mind for me is how hardcore are sellers and listing agents going to be when 
Because it happens all the time. I mean, down to the fact that some lenders can't even get us a pre-approval letter on the weekend. So maybe we use one in the file from somebody, you know, maybe they had talked to two, three lenders, they shop, you've got one in the file from one of them, but the other guy that they want to use or or think they're going to go with isn't available. Clearly, we'll have to use some discernment when we send those pre-approval letters. Maybe it's going to become more commonplace to say, hey, pre-approval to follow Monday morning. If we send one over and then the buyer changes lenders, are sellers going to really dig in? Are they going to ask a thousand questions? Is it going to get, you know, is it going to be a, a grinding process or will sellers be and listing agents, you know, it will be pretty normal, commonplace. These are things that will be interesting to find out. I get the concept of shopping before you make the offer, but I got to tell you, Tucker and I are both mortgage guys, previous mortgage guys. Those rates quoted before a lock is possible, you know, there's there's a little bit of unknowns in that. I mean, it's one thing to quote a rate as you're getting ready to lock the rate that day. It's another thing when you say, here's what we're able to offer, you know, and knowing that you're not locking it that day and they may change up and down for the next couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to see. This will be a big one. I like it. I'm going to be watching this one closely on my team and in our business just to see how it impacts day to day, you know, how it really works in in the real world. What do you think, Tucker? I mean, I think overall it's a great thing. I mean, we've had, you know, a lot of deals over the years where we've had to sniff out a change in lending, right? Like you feel like something's going on and you're not really being told when you should be. I mean, that should be part of the conversation that any agent has with the other agent that has with the seller. But sometimes people aren't that great at their jobs or they just want to not tell people and think that the mess will clean itself up and then they never have to have the conversation. I think this is good in bringing that to the forefront so that the seller can make an educated decision at that point, because that's a fork in the road, right? When you change lending, usually it's because of a problem right? Not rarely is it because of bad service or a rate discrepancy or something like that. It's usually because they can't do the loan with the exception of if you're using Wells Fargo, then people leave it for service and timelines. But otherwise, you know, it's really just a a matter of they can't get the loan done. So I think that then brings it to the forefront. The seller then can make a decision. Okay, well, if you have to change lenders, what does that really mean? Why? Now you and I, Steve, when we ask why we keep digging till we get the real answer, I don't know that people are always going to get the real answer if they don't know what to ask, but at least it brings it to the forefront and then they can make an educated decision at that point as to whether or not they want to continue on. Yeah. And the other thing that will be interesting to watch, and this could be a very, very good thing. This might make it easier to refer our preferred lenders. If we are telling these buyers like, look, you're welcome to go with ABC Acme Mortgage Online, for example, or you could go with my preferred lender, just know that you are now married to this person through the transaction, barring the seller allowing you to change. That could make it a little bit more scary for them up front, and maybe that will help us, which I'm all for that. If, if that helps us you know, get some expertise into the transaction that we know will you know, close on time smoothly with no surprises versus the one and done lender out there online or or who knows, even with their local bank, that's just seeing one transaction from this person has no hopes of getting more from us as the professional and, and maybe even them for another eight years. It'll be interesting. That would be great if that was another side benefit from this change. Do you have any other thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is the real intent 
is equity and fairness between the buyer and the seller and setting the seller up for a circumstance where they're held hostage waiting for a closing that they know is not going to happen because the buyer is changing their lender too late in the game or setting the seller up where they might have gotten five offers on a property and they accepted you know, the prevailing offer primarily because they had high confidence in the lender that the buyer was working with. And then the buyer can just change that, even though that was a material consideration and why they accepted the offer. We just felt that that wasn't fair and that wasn't equitable. And we wanted to try and make it a more fair and equitable interchange on that point between the buyer and the seller. I think all of the things you guys have said is true. And I hope what happens is that buyers and the buyer's agent engage the lender at a much earlier part in the process and make them a much more critical part of the offer and negotiation during the time of it's happening rather than you know waiting until Monday if they've written an offer on Friday evening and saying, oh yeah, I need a pre-approval letter. They're going to have to be more on the ball than that. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. yeah. And I think for those reasons, I think it's a great catch all to kind of basically clean up the way people do business. Yeah. Let me throw one more wild card out there at you. Let's hope lenders don't hold buyers hostage now. If you think about that, hey, my pre-approval letter was sent over. We haven't locked a rate. Here's what we're able to do. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. And that's where we're going to have help as the realtor by really encouraging them to go with somebody that we know and trust, because we can say that isn't going to happen. But given these changes, you know, that is something that could happen. So, so it's going to be an interesting well, one to watch. Devil's really- advocate, right? Like now steering's illegal, right? But this year as hell gives you a pretty good reason to steer people to somebody that at least you're confident with, right? Well, and steering's the wrong word. I mean, we're, you know, we have multiple lenders that we send and we're encouraging them to go with somebody that we've not only seen in action before, perform what they say on time smoothly with no surprises, but just as importantly, if not more so, every bit incentivized to do it on that transaction, because if they don't, they're risking a lot of future business from us. And and I don't mean... I don't mean you or I do anything illegal, but you and I obviously have a, a network of people that we know are very, very competent, right? But yeah, there's other yeah. people that, that don't necessarily. Yeah. And so it, it gives leverage to both parties. But we'll yeah. see. I think overall yeah. the good will outweigh the bad for sure. And yeah. it'll be positive. Yeah. And, and the devil in the details on this too is, you know, we're, I'm just saying this is how it is, but I'm not giving you all of the point by point language. The point by point language in the contract, and you need to be prepared for that to be a little bit fluid. Anytime we make a significant change like this, we always catch something that, you know, you can put in and in the wrong place and it changed the whole meaning of the you know of the phrase so you'll see a little bit of tweaking on that to make sure that it's proper and right i think we're there but the bottom line is you know the buyer is not going to be held hostage if they submit a loan estimate you know if, if they commit to a lender and then the loan estimate comes out and it's significantly different than what they were given when they got their pre-approval the buyer has a right you know to make that change and and if the, the seller doesn't have to approve it but they're not going to lose their earnest money so yeah it does kind of create the precedent that if you want to buy this house and the seller says I'm not allowing you to change a lender you might have a little bit of a sticky wicket there but it's not a complete you're going to work with this lender or else yeah. And I think it just puts it on the, the agents to have a reasonable conversation with each other to explain things. And I, I think it'll not be a problem at that point. I agree. Yep. And and I think this is an overall good change for lenders, especially strong local lenders, because the days of buyer just kind of going MIA and disappearing on them and not tell, you know, there's times in the past where we'll have a transaction, we get the offer accepted, a preferred lender is involved. They were in communication with a buyer. And then all of a sudden they get radio silence. We're not really hearing anything. All of a sudden somebody else reaches out and goes, hey, I'm working with so-and-so and and I'm I'm the lender on this deal. That's really not going to happen that way anymore. There's going to have to be clear communication with us, the agent, for sure. 
and possibly the ability to, you know, help. At least it opens the dialogue so there can possibly be some type of resolution. Is Why are you looking to make this change? This is kind of a big deal. The seller has to approve it. Is there a way that we can, you know, the lender can get you what is being quoted and dig into it a little bit further? So big, big change. I'm excited to see it play out. I think there is plenty of good in it. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Let's move on to the next one, Jeff. What do we got? Yeah. So I'm going to skip over seller carried financing. There are some changes to that, but I want to move on to the title insurance contingency. We've made a few changes to that. So first of all, the title insurance used to read that the title company would provide a copy of the preliminary title report and the CCNRs, even up until last year. Well, you know, if you're active in real estate, you know that the title company generates a lot of documentation of record, not just CCNRs anymore. There could be bylaws, they give a plat map, they give the vesting deed, there could be easements. There's tons of information that the buyer has a right to review and should have a right to review as part of that contingency. So the CCNRs have been changed to documents of record. In addition to that, the delivery method has been clarified to say that whatever delivery method you denote in this agreement is what the title company is going to use. And if you don't give the title company a delivery mechanism for the buyer, then they deliver the information to the buyer's agent. It's of the same effect as if they give it to the buyer. And that's the case with all of the other elements of the agreement. I mean, if if you deliver as a listing agent, the disclosure statement to the buyer's agent, it's the same as if you delivered it to the buyer. That's what it says and has said for years. This is just clarifying that point that if you don't want to put the buyer's contact information on the offer, and if you don't, once we get an open or a signed accepted offer, open escrow and provide buyer's contact information when you open escrow in some form, then the escrow company has nowhere to send the information to. They're going to send it to you. And when they do, you better get it to your buyer because it's the same as if they delivered it to your buyer once they deliver it to you. So those are the two major changes to the title insurance contingency section. Very well explained, Jeff. What's our next one? Good. Inspection contingency language. So we've changed the inspection contingency language. And the bottom line is this. For years now, I've been on the forms committee. I think this was my fourth or fifth year on the forms committee. And as a past chair, I can tell you a lot of subscriber feedback over the years is about the inspection contingency and people complaining for one of two reasons. Either A, I'm a listing agent and the buyer's agent just sent over the inspection report automatically and we didn't ask for it but now we have it. And, you know, what do we do? And it's clearly stated and has been that they only should send it if it's requested by the seller. So you had that problem. And then on the other side of the coin, you had the problem of a transaction either terminating or maybe even during the negotiation for repairs, the buyer might've sent over a repair addendum. The seller says, Hey, I'm not sure what item three is. I'd like to get a copy of the inspection report so that I can verify it. And the buyer's saying, no, no, I don't have to give you a copy. I'm not terminating or I've terminated, you're no longer entitled to the inspection report. So the language is as clear and clean now, I think, as we can make it that says that the inspection report or any portion of it is not to be sent to the seller unless it's requested by the seller or the seller's agent. And it is to be delivered at any time during the negotiation, during the transaction, or upon termination if it is requested. So I think we've tried our best to clear that up. The inspection addendum states the same thing. You know, I'm not naive enough to think that there won't still be people out there that just send the report automatically or that try not to send the report because they think it's proprietary to their buyer. But this language hopefully clears that up as much as it's possible. I love it. I love it. We've talked about this a lot on the show. We've talked about the pros and cons of getting it, of not getting it. I I love both sides of that. I I love that you're, you know, clarifying, hey, don't send it over unless you're asking for it. 
And then if they do ask for it, you got to send it over. So good yeah. stuff. We've talked about this a lot and it clarifies the, I guess the relationship or the obligation of, you know, what's required of each party and, you know, how to go about it. So I think that's a great change. Yeah. Good. I think it's as clear as it can be. Hopefully that'll uh, help to change positively the nature of the practice. So totally I question on Oregon tax withholding obligation, we added a checkbox whether the seller is or isn't a permanent resident of Oregon. Title companies need to know that so they can prep the documentation rather than having it be an, oh my gosh, at the end of the transaction, the seller finally has contacted us and we now know they're not a resident of the state of Oregon. We're going to have to do a withholding and they didn't know that. So it's just a trigger up front. And I, you know, the feedback I've already gotten, and I've taught this class, you know, all over the state at this point is I'm a buyer's agent. How do I know whether the seller is or isn't a permanent resident of the state of Oregon? And why are you asking me to fill that out? I think it just kind of comes down to communication. You know, you can maybe make some assumption if you know the circumstances of the buyer or the seller, if you know that you had to schedule the appointment to show the property with them and they're still living in the home, then they're a resident, right? But if you don't know that, then you can contact the listing agent and the communication with most people, I think, is pretty freeform enough, whether it's text or email or, or, you know, voicemail that you should be able to get that and check that in advance. Worst case scenario, you can leave it blank. The seller can add it in. But it's just really a, a good tool to bring up the discussion so that it's not a last minute. We didn't know we had to deal with this. And now we do. Hey, Jeff. If I knew somebody on the RMLS committee, <laughs> which yeah. I think I do, I think it would be great if the listing agent had to put it in RMLS. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. And as I mentioned, I am on the RMLS forms committee. I anticipate that we're going to be crossing that bridge here in the near future, probably at our very first meeting of the year. Similar to what we did a few years ago with FERPTA, that you know we asked sellers in the listing contract to state whether they are or whether they're not a foreign person so we could preemptively vet the FERPTA issue. I think we'll do that same thing with permanent resident of the state of Oregon. And that brings us to the FERPTA section, which I'm not going to go into detail on, but guidelines for FERPTA have changed and the dollar amount of the transaction has changed. Some of the guidelines have changed for the withholding. For example, it's 10% of withholding if the property is up to a million, but it jumps to 15% if the property is over a million. And those things changed throughout the year last year. So we, you know, all we did was update the sale agreement to reflect properly what FERPTA actually says. Cool. All right. Item nine is the townhouse plan community identification. That was added in miscellaneous items. So that was a, I think that's going to be a reasonably significant change. And I've, I've been a little bit surprised as I've been teaching this class that everybody's just kind of going, great. We like it. It's a good change. I kind of expected some pushback on it. But basically what it is, is I live in Sherwood. And you guys know Sherwood probably. And, you know, Woodhaven is a huge neighborhood in Sherwood. It's a planned community. There's a big HOA. There's parks. There's trails. They have a reserve study. They have a budget. They have a, you know, architectural review committee. I've sold, I can't tell you how many homes in Sherwood and never thought to submit a planned community addendum. It's just a detached single family residence. So you don't think about that. But now it says if this is a townhouse or if it's in a planned community, and you know, typically meaning if it's an HOA, although they're not always synonymous. But the real point here is if the homeowner's buying a home where they're also buying into the HOA and they have liability, potentially, if the HOA comes under some type of a lawsuit or if they're underfunded and there's going to be an assessment of some kind or something like that, that the buyer has a right to get that information. So when you're writing the offer, you check yes or no whether or not the property is in a planned community or a townhouse. And if the answer is yes, you have to submit the addendum. There's a lot of information on that addendum that the seller needs to provide up front. So one of the things we did preemptively do is at, our, at the forms committee on RMLS, we've looked at adding a supplement form 
or townhouse slash plan community so that literally the information that's being sought on that addendum is available in that supplement documentation. That needs to go to the board of directors at RMLS for final approval, but we're, we're making that request. And I think that with this change, it's likely to receive approval, although I can't commit it. So this is another big one. This is another big one. There's a lot of HOAs out there. I mean, Mountain Park, you could rattle off a gazillion of these. And you made a good point, Jeff. They're not always one in the same. If there's an HOA, this is required, but it's a pretty good indicator. If in RMLS, that HOA has a, a figure by it and says, you know, there's amount due annually or monthly or whatever the case, then you're probably going to need this form attached if I'm understanding it correctly, Jeff, here, the buyer's agent really isn't doing much other than checking a box and a providing it. And then it's on the seller. Should they accept that offer? Obviously, they would only do it on the one offer they accept. If they had multiple offers, they would leave all the others alone. But on the one offer they do indeed accept, they would then start providing information about the HOA. Is that correct, Jeff? That is correct. So, you know, in that form, the buyer is going to have to check what documentation do I want? Do I want a copy of the bylaws? Do I want 12 months worth of meeting minutes? Maybe I want 24 months worth of meeting minutes. You know, pretty much all the same language that's been on the addendum and is in the condominium sale agreement. So the buyer is going to have to, when they make their offer and complete that form, check what they want for information. Okay, got it. But the bottom line there is, I think that this will be a change of practice when you're a listing agent to the standpoint of, I know when I list a condo, one of the things that I do with that seller is say, hey, listen, here's the condo sale agreement. Here's all the stuff I already know that you're going to have to provide when we sell this thing. So let's just get it now so that we aren't scrambling when we get an offer. And I think that's certainly going to be my business practice now. If I'm listing a property and it's in an HOA, I'm going to be saying to that seller, look, you know, here's this addendum. Here's all the documentation. It's likely a buyer is going to be asking for. Let's source it now. I'll put it in my file. You know, certainly we'll have to do updates depending upon how long it's on the market and if there's a meeting of the HOA or whatever. But, you know, the bylaws don't change. Some of those things are pretty constant. So get that information up front so that when the offer comes in, the seller can readily provide it. And it's good consumer information. I mean, the bottom line is what we're doing is better arming the consumer of the property to know exactly what they're buying. And that is good. Does it provide a timeline, Jeff, like in X amount of days? Yeah. or is Yeah, yeah. The, the addendum states that if you leave it blank, I believe that it default gives the seller seven business days to source the information and the buyer five business days to review it once delivered to the buyer. I think those are the defaults, but there's a blank that you can write in a different date if you don't like the defaults. Interesting. Yeah. Big change. Lots I of HOAs out there. Yeah, I think that's What's good there? though, because it's kind of higher level stuff that most people don't think about, but can dramatically impact them depending on the property they're buying. And having been involved in a number of HOAs, whether it be, you know, for single family neighborhoods or otherwise, you know, they could be a giant pain in the you know what. So it's good to get all the info ahead of time so you know what you're buying into. I think it's a good point, Tucker. It's forcing people to think about it. I've had many transactions. I'll be the first to tell you, there's a lot of transactions where there's an HOA and we don't have a lot of conversations about, you know, what's involved in that. Should we look into it? Because it wasn't just, there wasn't a trigger mechanism saying, hey, let's look into this stuff. This is kind of triggering that, which is going to force the buyer to start thinking about, okay, what are these things? What are these meeting minutes? 
Should yeah. I be looking at them? And I think and the only reason I bring it up is because I'm currently the president of one HOA just by circumstance because I'm the longest tenured owner in the in the you know the community and I was treasurer for years on a huge HOA down here in Johns Landing. So I guess you know I've seen the good and the bad that you have to deal with, whether it be assessments, you know, financial issues, other problems that come up with you know the HOAs have to deal with. And so yeah, it's important that buyers really know what they're getting into because you know right now everything's good, but when the market's slow shit hits the fan sometimes and especially with HOAs. And so it's good to know that stuff at least ahead of time and and be able to factor that in. Yeah. Cool. What do we got yeah, next, yeah. Jeff? Yeah, I would say that throughout the state that that's being echoed as well. So the next big change is in regard to uh, receipt for earnest money. So what we've done is we've expanded that section and really super highly clarified that section. And the reason that we did that is because Believe it or not, we would get a lot of subscriber feedback from, say, a listing agent saying, hey, listen, I've received an offer and the buyer's agent says that they've checked the box saying that they're collecting a check. And then they've gone down to the promissory note line saying that the check isn't payable until three days after a signed accepted offer is received. So what they're essentially saying is my buyer is going to make earnest money in the form of a check, but I haven't collected it and I'm not going to collect it until after three days, you know, up until after three days of having a signed accepted offer. And obviously that means they have not collected any earnest money right? So you can't do that. It's an earnest money agreement. You've got to collect some form of, of earnest money. So what we've done is super clarified that you'll see if you read through that section that there's a lot of clarity on if you accept cash, how does that have to go? Where can you put the cash and what's going to happen to it after you put it there? If you take a check, who do they make the check payable to? And then is it held at your client trust account in your company until disbursement? Or are you going to disperse it right away upon signed acceptance? Or are you just going to have them make the check payable to the title company and deposit it directly with escrow? If you do a promissory note, you'll see that it's just one line, promissory note. We didn't put all of the terms of the promissory note on the sale agreement because guess what? The terms of the promissory note are on the promissory note. So just leaving it blank there and saying, hey, I'm going to use a promissory note. Great. You can look at the promissory note for all the terms, but that eliminates a circumstance where somebody can try and use the terms of the promissory note for any of the other forms of earnest money. So that was really the point. And I think it's very good. I think it's very, very clear and very well done. So hopefully. Good change. All right. So definitions and instruction language was changed to, again, talk about and clarify the method of communication that will be used to communicate to all parties. And just so I've said it again, you know, if you don't provide contact information for your client to the title company or to any of the other parties to the agreement that need it, they're going to use you as the contact party. And it's the same as if they deliver it to their client. So, you know, if, if you're going on vacation, if you're going to be away from your desk for, you know, any length of time, you need to have somebody covering for you that can get that communication turned around to your buyers. Because if a listing agent delivers something to you, the timeline starts upon delivery you know, to you. Same thing for title. If they deliver the title reports to you, the timeline for your buyer starts on that next business day thereafter. So you need to make sure that you're, you've got proper coverage for yourself as a professional, right? That's what we all should be doing. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, dispute resolution was changed. And this is a pretty significant change. So basically what it does is it removes a safe harbor for realtors and brokerage firms that allowed them not to participate in mediation or be subject to the prevailing attorney's fees provision. So for many, many years now, you know, the sale agreement has said that mediation, you know, small claims court mediation and arbitration, unless there's a licensee or a firm involved. And then if there's a licensee or a firm involved, there was a different dispute resolution procedure. And basically that difference was A, 
the licensee and or the firm did not have to participate in mediation. They could opt out of it. And B, that they weren't subject to the prevailing attorney's fees and court clause that everybody else was subject to. So now that's different. Now everybody is under the same rules. If you're a licensee or a firm, the mediation, the dispute resolution process for small claims mediation and arbitration is the same for everybody. So it's a pretty significant change if you're a brokerage or a firm or you own your own company, you'll want to make note of that change. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. All right. So signature instructions language was added to notify buyers to seek legal advice regarding forms of co-ownership and to inform the title company of how they wish to hold title. That's an important change. I don't know how significant really I'd say it is, but I think it is helpful to bring up the conversation with your buyer. Maybe you have a couple that's not legally married, but they intend to have right of survivorship. The conversation never comes up because it was never in the sale agreement. And so now, you know, they get to the closing table or they close on the property and they didn't realize they didn't have right of survivorship because the title company is going to default usually to to tenancy in common unless they're a legally married couple. So it brings up the conversation. How do you want to hold title? I'm not an attorney. I can't tell you what your best options are. I can, you know, you just need to tell me or communicate the title how you want to hold title to the property if there's more than one buyer. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Good one. Okay. The acknowledgement section is, I think this is also my second favorite change next to the separation out of the earnest money. But the acknowledgement section is now, I think, much more clear. And what we've done is we've bifurcated it so that there's an acknowledgement section that applies if the buyer is acknowledging the seller's acceptance of their offer during prior to it expiring, right? You make an offer, it's supposed to expire at five o'clock on January 16th. The seller accepts it at three o'clock on January 16th. You sign, hey, I acknowledge that you accepted my offer. That's great. And it even says in there that this doesn't, you know, the buyer's signature on this doesn't create the timeline for the contingencies. The timeline for the contingencies is created upon delivery of the accepted offer back to the buyer. Whenever they want to sign, the acknowledgement is up to them, but the actual timelines begin upon delivery back to the buyer. But now there's a bifurcated section out if in the event that the seller accepts the offer after expiration or transmit it after expiration, then the buyer has to agree to be bound by that offer if they want to still move forward. And if they agree to be bound by the offer, they have to check the box. And if they don't check the box, it says that by failing to check either box, you've actually rejected the seller's late acceptance of your offer. It said that before. It says that now. But I think a lot of people just didn't see that because it was mixed in as one big section. They just wouldn't check the box. Now, it's super clear. If the seller accepted your offer after it expired and you want to agree to be bound by it, you have to check that you agree. You have to sign And you have to deliver that agreement back to the seller in order for it to be legally binding on the seller. In order to have signed acceptance, you have to deliver that back. So I think the language in that section is extremely clear now, and I'm glad that we separated it out and made it two different options. Yeah, that's an important change. I mean, the bottom line is if the offer is made and the seller is accepting it after the deadline, buyer's side really needs to pay attention to this area. If that isn't the case, then this area isn't quite as important. But anytime, this is just a word of caution to any buyer's agents out there. If you are sending an offer, seller accepts after the expiration, read this and then read it again and then read it a third time and make sure you're checking the right boxes and you're sending over correctly. Because what Jeff said is if you're not checking the right boxes, you're not in contract and it effectively is rejecting their acceptance. So that's a big deal. 
for example, right, somebody sends over an offer on a weekend, it expires Sunday at five, seller pulls the old I'm out of the country till Monday thing, and they come back in on Monday to review offers, they accept your offer, it's past expiration, then you need to pay attention to this, essentially is what we're saying. Yep. Yeah. And can't tell you how many times I've received offers back after my seller has done a late acceptance and the buyer's agent's excited thinking we have a deal because their buyer signed the acknowledgement, but they didn't check either box. And if you read it, literally it says that means you've rejected it. So it's just, it's just super clarifying. All right. So that kind of sums up the sale agreement itself. Now I want to go on to some of the changes to the other forms. If we've got time for all of that. We can cruise through a few of these. I think vacant land is, you know, there's not too many people dealing with that. So we can probably cruise through that pretty quick. There was one thing in here on the agreement to occupy after closing that I wanted to really dig into a little bit. So we can cruise through until we get to that point, And then maybe we discuss from there if that's good with you guys. Yeah, that's good. So I'll just quickly touch on that vacant land. Basically, what's happened is we've created a vacant land property disclosure addendum. So if you're selling vacant land, if you're listing vacant land, there is a form now in the library. You need to give it to your sellers. If you're writing an offer on vacant land, the buyer has a right to receive that unless they waive it. It's not statutorily required, but contractually it's required. Certainly a seller could counter it out if they don't want to do it. But Bottom line is it kind of the same thing as a planned community and townhome addendum. It's more information up front for the buyer, which we felt was a good thing and a good change of practice. So for those of you that sell vacant land, you'll want to look through those documents and, and take note of it. The townhouse and planned community resale addendum and the condo resale advisory and the condo sale agreement. Basically, there was language added saying, hey, you might want to seek the assistance of a third party person to help you understand this reserve study and HOA documentation. You might get a reserve study that's 300 pages and has, you know, trigonomic equations in it. I'm a realtor. I don't, you know, I don't know how to read all that stuff, but there are people that do that and you might want to engage one of those. So there was just a notice made there. So now that brings us to the agreement. Yeah. Agreement to occupy after closing. So there were some changes made to that. First, there's a notice given right up front that the agreement is not subject to the Landlord-Tenant Act. And if you want to evict somebody, you've got to give them 24 hours notice. And then there was a notice put in about buyer to verify with their lender that the length of possession after closing is allowed by the note holder. Bottom line there is, you know, you'll get a lot of times where somebody will agree to, hey, I'll let you stay, you know, up to 90 days because they can stay up to 90 days after closing without creating a landlord-tenant relationship. But if the buyer's getting a mortgage, they're usually going to be asked to sign a statement saying that they're going to occupy the property within 60 days. So this was one that I read and I thought, honestly, I thought realtors are overcomplicating things. (laughs) That's what I thought, you know, and I get the intent, but this kind of just seems like a giant pain in the ass. And it could be a little bit of a domino effect because now you're forcing lenders hand to basically create a department or a guy that deals with this and either yays or nays it and you're going to have the levels of bureaucracy that then have to discuss it. it just seems like this one might be a little bit of a domino i don't i don't know what do you guys think all right yeah the point really was not to create more bureaucracy for the lender it was really more to say to the buyer hey if you're granting occupancy to a seller after closing, you need to verify that your lender will allow that for the time period that they're asking for. If the seller wants to stay for 90 days, you need to make sure that you can allow that and still be in compliance with the mortgage that you're getting. The language wasn't created to increase the function or the job of the lender, more it was created as a notice to the buyer If you're allowing occupancy after closing and you're getting a loan, you need to verify that the amount of time matches up and that you're not overextending it. Yeah, and I know 
Go ahead, Steve. I already talked. Yeah, so. I don't think it's quite like you were seeing it, Tucker. This is basically just a disclosure in that in the agreement to occupy after closing. So if I'm selling my house and I'm like, hey, I want to stay in it another month after closing in my counter, I'm sending this back to the buying side. Now the buying side gets it and they're like, hey, OK, you know, they're, they're reading the bullet points of what the ramifications of that are. You know, am I going to allow pets does my insurance policy cover the house with me not in there or at least looking into it? One of the things that's now triggering them to look into is, hey, does your new loan allow you to not have possession for that amount of time? It's not going to the lender per se. The lenders were always in the know typically in regards to this before. It's just before they get too far down that path, now the buyer's calling up the lender or just checking themselves, which probably means calling up the lender and going, hey, I'm buying this house. I'm going to let the seller stay there for X amount of days. Is that allowed with my owner-occupied loan? Like Jeff said, most loans, I think there's some variances, but allow 60 days. So in most cases, this really isn't going to be an issue. It's on those ones where somebody's trying to stay in the home for three months you know, or over 60 days where this is going to get caught early on versus way later in the game. Yeah, I don't know what, you know, the actual underwriting guideline days is. I mean, it's kind of much to do about nothing, honestly. I mean, really, the most important thing should be insurance, right? I mean, I think somebody should carry the proper insurance if that's the case, in case the house burns down. There's a million reasons why houses burn down. I haven't seen any studies that say people that do rentbacks burn down a house more than people that move in, you know, freshly. But, you know, I'm sure somebody's got a study out there that could prove that. But it just seems like, so now you got to make the call to the lender, right? Your lender's going to go, uh, I don't know. Let me call somebody and then they're probably going to call somebody and they're going to say, ah, I don't know. And so I guess it'll work itself out over time because they're going to have to figure out, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. It just kind of forces their hand to deal with something that previously nobody cared, right? Well, they always cared, Tucker. No, most lenders know these guidelines. Let me say this another way. This is all about occupancy. This is all about you're getting an owner-occupied loan. Like if I can't, yeah, you I talk agree. Now, the intent is to be an owner-occupant, right? Obviously, yeah, yeah. you're doing a non-owner with owner-occupant. Now you're talking about mortgage fraud, but the intent is always owner-occupancy. Yeah, so, just, so there's, there's guidelines. Early time between occupying. Yeah, so there's guidelines. What defines owner-occupancy? If I'm buying your house, how long before I have to move in for it to be considered an owner-occupied loan? And most of those guidelines are known by the lenders. They tend to be I, conventional 60 days, I believe. And I think Jeff said that, and I th I'm fairly sure that is the case. It may vary a little bit with FHA, VA. Lenders know this. Buyers don't. So now the buyer's going to see this and go, hey, the seller's asking me for three months in my house. Let me call my lender and see if that's okay. Nope, not okay. Hey, seller, I can't do three months. I can do two months. They're doing this up front now versus during underwriting or way down the road when it would be more problematic because the sellers now built their entire transaction on the three months when they should have been told up front, you know, you could, the most you can have is 60 days. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to get to the intent of it. Like, what's the intent? And I guess it's to potentially give the buyers leverage to not allow such long rent backs. I don't know. I guess that's or the prevent. The intent is to be proactive in apart. understanding the guidelines. It's so all parties understand the guidelines proactively up front, not a you know, gotcha moment 30 days later and everybody's scrambling to figure out how to change this 90 day rent back to a 60 day rent back yeah. and all the implications that would have. I guess yeah. I'm just, there has to be a case study, right, Jeff, where somebody got themselves into a mess, which is why this change is happening. I'm just curious what that entailed exactly. 
yeah, and I can't quote you to a specific case study where somebody got into a mess, but I can tell you that just about every closing that a buyer goes to where they're an owner-occupant buyer, they sign something at the closing table saying that they agree to occupy this property or, you know, when they're going to occupy the property or that they agree to occupy it within 60 days. I don't, you know, I go to all my closings. I can't recall the last time I went to an owner-occupied closing and there wasn't a document that said language to that effect. Yeah, so what usually- this means, yeah. preemptively eliminates a circumstance where you've got a buyer sitting at the closing table being asked to sign this document and they're looking at each other going, it's not true. Seller's going to occupy for 90 days. We're not moving there in for you 90 go. days. You know, yeah. so I would just that. be curious. I know that there's always the, yes, I intend to owner occupied this property. You know, I didn't know that they have a specific days numbered on that document now, I, you know, which for obvious reasons, yeah. I'm not in the lending game anymore, but yeah, and I'm not picking at you, Jeff or Steve. I'm just trying to get to the root of why, you know, what this is trying to prevent. It sounds if like, they, from what you guys are telling me, it's just to prevent anybody from having any untruths in the process, but also prevent any sort of collapse of financing along the way. Yeah, yeah. And if lenders didn't have this guideline, people would be running around buying owner-occupied houses saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to live there next year or I'm going to live there in six months. And really, they're just buying a rental under the guise of owner-occupied loans. So the lenders are very strict. You have to occupy it within 60 days. And so now this is putting it on everybody's radar that if you're doing an occupancy after closing, seller occupancy after closing, you better check with the lender of the buyer to make sure you're within the guidelines. So cool. Yep. Let's move on to the next one, Jeff. Yeah. All right. So the next one is there was a change to the seller holdover section and the language in there was a little bit murky. I think now it's much more clear. It just specifically says it's a seller's failure to vacate by the end of the term, the 24 hours written notice and what happens if there's damages. There's a couple of options for how you handle damages if there are any. I think that the language there is much better than what was in the in as a quote unquote seller holdover prior to this change. So I won't go into the details of it, but I encourage you to review that because you're going to need to know how you want to handle that with a client. So then I want to move on to the promissory note. Quick change to the promissory note. Basically, there was language added that if the earnest money is 10000 or less, the seller may bring a small claims court against the buyer for enforcement of the note, but they're not required to pursue it in small claims. So they can mediate and arbitrate that disputed funds instead of having to have it heard in small claims court. And the reason for that is because, you know, let's say you have a significant property and you have a $10,000 earnest money amount that's legitimate. And the buyer fails to perform and the seller knows, hey, listen, you strung me out for four months here, didn't close. I've had my house off the market all summer. I want that $10,000 earnest money. That really is a liquidated damage sum in this circumstance. And the you know they can't agree. The buyer wants it. The seller wants it. It goes to small claims court. You end up with a judge who doesn't really know very much about real estate law and hasn't eaten since 10 o'clock in the morning and they want to go home. And so they say, hey, just split it and get out of my way, right? That's not appealable. I mean, small claims court decisions, you can't appeal them. So that's not necessarily fair to that seller. So the seller could say, hey, listen, this is a legitimate enough deal here that we're not going to do this in small claims. We're going to take it to mediation and arbitration. So and I think that that's was really the thing. Having yeah. been through a few mediations, which is inevitable if you're in real estate long enough, I think that's a good way to solve a problem because usually people then leave and everybody can shake hands and that's just a better way to solve a problem. So Yeah, yeah. Right. So before it wasn't an option. You had to go to small claims if the earnest money was under 10000 Now it's up. Whose option is it? Is it both parties, Jeff? I would have to look at it to tell you that for sure. I can pull it up here real quick. I know it says that the seller isn't obligated. It says... Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, seller may. So it's a seller's option. Gotcha. Cool. Good change. 
Okay. All right. So there were some changes made to the private well addendum. If you use those addendums, if you sell a lot of rural property, you're going to want to review those. They aren't shattering, so I don't want to go into them. They're pretty much just language changes that match what actually has to happen when you sell a property that has a well. And there have been some changes to reporting and that kind of stuff. So we wanted to reflect those. What I really want to make some time for, and I know we're running toward the end of the clock here, is the contingent right to purchase addendum. Do we have some time for me to spend a few yeah, minutes on th that? These are big changes, Jeff. We'll squeeze this in and wrap up with these. So go for it. Great. So the big premise here is we've pretty much redrafted the contingent right to purchase addendum. And in addition to that, we have eliminated the our contingency form. And here's the reason why. What we were seeing is a lot of people using whichever of those two contingency forms they felt was the best for their client. So for example, the our contingency form didn't have anything in there regarding the sale and closing, or if the seller notified the buyer of receipt of another offer that the buyer had to remove their financing contingency if they wanted to move forward. Likewise, the contingent right to purchase form had a clarification of when the buyer could choose to do their inspections. They could either do them right away upon signed acceptance, or they could wait until they notified the seller of their receipt of an offer on their home and remove the contingency before doing inspections. So you had people kind of not arguing, but essentially having a disagreement about which form was better to use. Our contingency form, the intention of it was you use that for other contingencies. If you're rolling over a 401k, if you're receiving gift funds from mom and dad and they don't want to give the funds until they see the house, but you want to make an offer, even though you know they can't come out for another week or two, you would have used that hour contingency form. What we found was the frequency of use for that form was almost none. And if somebody had a contingency of that nature, they were just writing it into additional provisions in the sale agreement. So we've eliminated that form and we've completely rewritten the contingent right to purchase agreement. So the way that it's worded now is it's contingent upon the sale and closing of the buyer's current property at whatever address you write in there. And then you write a time period for saying, here's how much time the buyer has to remove the contingency and select either a full removal of the contingency or a partial. A partial removal of the contingency is I've sold my home but it hasn't closed yet and it has to close in order for me to have the money for the down payment on the house I'm buying from you. And if my property fails to close, I can't buy your property and you're going to agree to terminate at that point and let me have my earnest money back. So that's option alternative one. And alternative two is a full release of the contingency, meaning whether or not I have sold my home, I'm telling you that I don't need to sell or close my home in order to purchase the property anymore. I can move forward with this transaction without selling my current home, and I can prove it financially with the pre-approval letter that I can get from my lender verifying that I'm qualified to do that. Would, so, would you still uh, have a finance contingency and get your earnest money back if the financing fell apart on alternative two, Jeff? No, it says that you remove all contingencies relating to the sale and closing and you remove all contingencies relating to your qualifying for the financing under the sale agreement. So no, and I it's, get it's that. a pretty tight, yeah. it's a pretty tight contingency at that point. Yeah, and, no, and I get that because at that point, and when you would exercise that is, look, if somebody says, hey, we got another offer, it's time to put up or shut up. Can you guys do this? Right. It would get abused if it wasn't such an aggressive approach people would be like, oh, no, no, yeah, we can buy without selling. And they'd start moving forward, but they're really secretly trying to sell their house, trying to get an offer. Maybe they think there's word of an offer coming. And then when that didn't come to fruition, they'd be like, well, my lender says I can't qualify for the loan. And truthfully right. so, because they have the other house. And so they'd throw that out there, get their earnest money back and just be a, it'd be a, a mess for the seller. So 
you're really at that point putting an aggressive stance there that I'm going to get this house seller rest assured your earnest money is all but mine at this point because the seller has another offer they have another solid offer so i think i get it i've always got that i like these changes and by the way on a side note there's a lot more contingencies out there these days we're seeing it more and more both on, mm-hmm. on our listings and on our buyers they're writing a lot more of these contingent offers so these are going to be seen and used a lot yeah that's quickly. great that's a great tool though i think both in terms of for the buyer and the seller so for a qualified buyer and a, and a willing seller. I think that's a great tool to be able to use. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, we really try to be, there's a couple of things that we've really tried to be preemptive on this being one of them. And then the first language that we saw, we've already talked about being another one. We certainly as a committee have anticipated with the change in market that we're going to start seeing more contingencies and you know, how many more years down the road is it going to be before we start seeing a lot more transactions where there are foreign people selling homes and FERPTA does apply, you know, that, that day is coming. So anyway, the rest of the changes to this document just talk about timelines and, you know, will the timelines commence after you have a signed and accepted agreement or will the timelines commence after you remove the contingency, whether you do it partially or fully? And then when will it close, right? Do you want the closing to be maintained? If you put a closing date in the contract and you want to maintain that closing date, fine. But if you put a closing date in the contract as a stopgap, what's the furthest possible date we think you can accept that we don't see going past, but maybe you write 90 days and then you put your house on the market and it sells in a day and it's going to close in 45 days. You probably don't want to be homeless for 45 days. So most people will write in, hey, I want this property to close 45 days after I notify you that I've sold my house and I'm removing the contingency. So that we put those options in there for people to utilize. So I think it's very well drafted as it is. I think it fully describes the contingency. And at the risk of taking up too much time on it, there's a couple of real big broad brush points I want to make about how we drafted this. And it's how I talk to a client, which is, you know, if you're buying a house, utilizing a contingency, there's a point at which you're going to get your offer accepted. You're going to put your house on the market. You're going to sell your house and be fully committed to the sale of that property. But your house you're buying is not yet going to have closed. There will come a point where The reality is you could be homeless. You could be fully committed to having to sell the home you're living in without closing on the home you're buying, right? If something goes wrong at the 11th hour on the home you're buying and the buyer for the home that you're selling fully commits and they purchase, there's just nothing I can do about that. That's a reality. And if you aren't okay with that reality, then you should not use this tool to purchase. You should get pre-approved to buy the home without needing to sell your current home. You should put your house on the market and sell it and move into an apartment So until we find you another home. But if you aren't okay with the reality of having to change gears at the last minute on that unlikely but possible circumstance, then this isn't the right type of transaction for you. The flip side of that is if you're a seller, if you're a listing agent and you're a seller accepting the contingency, you're saying, look, I'm all right with the fact that this buyer is contingent. And if they partially remove the contingency, Something could happen on the house that they're selling up till the last minute. It could fall apart, which is going to terminate this transaction. And I'm going to agree to give them their earnest money back unless I addendum that out or counter that point out. If I'm not willing to counter that out or if they won't accept it and I'm not willing to accept that term, then I shouldn't accept a contingent offer. I should wait for a buyer that's non-contingent. So those are the two big realities. Anytime you're selling a home with a contingency that you just have to talk with your clients about and know. And we've tried to address those as best we could in these documents. I love it, Jeff. Well explained. And kind of to add to that, you know, when I'm talking to clients about this, you have to say, look, it's not a perfect process. There's no guarantees going down this path. It's a good route to go. There's some protections in, you know, 
the vast majority of the time, it can be a really good way to identify a home you buy and have a smooth transition to it. But there's a lot of moving parts to this, and there's a lot of different parties to the various transactions on all sides, and there's no guarantees. So having a backup plan is key. If one or both of those goes awry, let's have some fail-safes in place so that we can you know, deal with that and not be blindsided fully. So, And some people don't have the stomach for those risks, and they shouldn't do this. Like you said, Jeff, I mean, they should just sell first. And, you know, maybe once in escrow, try to identify the right property. But if that can't happen, be prepared to do a double move into temporary housing or with a family and use some pods, whatever the case. Educate them on those options because maybe it's just they don't have the stomach for the risks involved with the contingency to sell. So, And I think we are going to see a lot more contingent type stuff. I mean, we'll talk about it in next week's show, but 1.3 months inventory, it's going to be a contingent filled market this year, I have a feeling. So good stuff. Yeah, the other thing I really quickly want to add, not to interrupt, is we also created a notice to the seller and a notice to the buyer that you need to be utilized in conjunction with that document. And we've titled them so that they'll appear right next to each other in the library on zip form. So just know if you're making a notification to the seller that you've accepted an offer on your property and now you want to remove the contingency partially, there's a form for that. If you're a seller and you want to notify a buyer you've received another offer that you want to take and you want to trigger that timeline for when they have to you know, put up or shut up, then there's a document for that. And it's in the library. Okay. Jeff, that's amazing. It was always loosey goosey before, like in the various transactions, I'd be like, okay, now what do we do here? We, we need to, I mean, there's been times where I've been on both sides of transactions where we kind of got an offer accepted and we didn't, you know, fully notify the other side in a timely fashion. And that's happened to us just because, you know, it wasn't a real clear path of how you do that. I mean, it was always just like taking an addendum and filling it out and signing it. But that is a really good change. There are actual forms now notifying the parties of when a contingency is being exercised. Yeah, yes. fantastic. Well, hey, Jeff, we appreciate you coming on the show. You were absolute wealth of knowledge. I'm glad Steve lined you up. I got a lot out of this. I'm sure Steve did as well. And I'm sure all of our listeners you know, are, are absolutely loving it. So appreciate your time here today. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Cool. Well, this is episode 57, Steve. I'll catch you next week. Hopefully, snowpocalypse will be over and we can chat a little bit about this crazy market as we're into 2017 now. I look forward to it. That sounds great. Perfect. All right, guys. Jeff, thanks again. Steve, I'll see you next week. And we'll sign off and see you guys out there in Listener Land next week as well. Thanks again for listening to our show. And make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.